白いバットのギャングルに今日も嵐が吹き荒れるルルブ用の悪党に正義のパンチをぶちかませ行け行けタイガータイガーマスク Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Tips Magazine. We got sad news today that Chavo Guerrero Sr. passed away. The son of Gori Guerrero, brother of Hector, Mondo, and Eddie, and of course, father of Chavo Jr. To talk about Chavo's career in one of the places where he was best remembered, and that's Houston, is Matt. To talk about some of his matches and some other stuff. And we are also going to play an excerpt from episode 7 of the podcast with Vandal Drummond, where we talked about the passing of Roddy Piper. And one of the important things about Piper in Los Angeles was his feud with Chavo Guerrero. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Back to the Winter Palace.、Uh, the wrestling world was saddened to learn today of the passing of Chavo Guerrero Sr., as we know him, although technically he was also Chavo Jr., since he was Salvador Guerrero Jr., and Chavo Jr. is Salvador Guerrero III.、Uh, to talk about、uh, some parts of his career that he knows fairly well, we welcome back to the show Matt. How's it going, Matt? Good. I,、uh, I always hate doing these、uh, eulogy ones, but、um, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. I think, in some ways, I mean, you know, I don't watch much of the current product outside of Lucia, so sometimes I'm more engaged. In, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that, that it's an obituary and not just a career retrospective, but.、Mm-hmm. So、uh, you are a big. Uh, expert, I guess we can say, on the Paul Bosch Houston area,、mm-hmm. largely due to the, the NWA.com streaming service that you are a large proponent of. And there is a ton of Guerrero stuff from Houston, correct? Yeah,、um, I would say if I'm, if I'm an expert, it's because I've been watching this stuff as they release new footage almost every day for the last. Um, year and a half or so, and sort of pouring over the results is more often than I should,、um, anticipating what I might be getting next. So, in that regard, yeah, I, I have learned a lot about it sort of by, in a very organic way, as we start to get these cards、um, in full over sort of the 78 through 86 period, and Chavo was all over those cards. Yeah, and. He worked all over the place.、Um, he notably worked in Los Angeles. He had a, a big feud with Piper in the mid to late 70s. Worked a bunch of different places, a lot in Japan,、um, some in Mexico, probably not as much as people may think.、Um, all over the place.、Um, if you have the network, 
um, people can see him in a six-man match f from Super Clash 3, of all places, where Hector Chavo and Mondo wrestled the RPMs and a very young Mick Foley when he was still Cactus Jack. But, like you said, a lot of what we have of him is from is from Houston. Yeah, and it's stuff we didn't have up until a couple of years ago. We had a few things based out of the Mid-South collection, um, you know, the Watts tapes, and we had some stuff from Japan. And past that, it was, you know, spatterings, a Mexico match here, you know, maybe some of the sort of black or the soundless footage we might have in L.A. I know we have a little more now, but not a ton, um, those reels. But yeah, we've gotten maybe a dozen, maybe a little more um, of his matches out of Houston, both, you know, key singles matches, and, and we still have a number to go, and also him tagging with Hector and with other people. So we, we've got spatterings of feuds that we've seen, um, not a ton complete, but enough to really get a great picture of just, you know, how big a star and how talented he was in Houston. I remember back in the 80s, there was a series of videotapes released that I think we now probably know was Houston footage, but, you know, not having all the information that we have now. But one of those tapes had a cage match between the Guerreros and the Fabulous Ones. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, it's sort of the WWF-style cage with the bars and not chicken wire, if I remember that correctly. Is that is that on the is that on the website? That is on the website. That one actually might be on YouTube, too, just because it was on that tape. But we have a few of those matches there. Um, we have uh, – what we don't have is a match with him and Kern from that feud – where uh, the loser was painted yellow. But uh, we do have a Mexican death match with them as well. Um, in that case, the Guerreros were faces again because they had um, turned the year before and they, they came back as faces in the fabs of the heels, which is always kind of interesting. I remember I remember as a, as a teenager watching that match and being very confused because I think that was the first time I had seen the Fabs as heels, maybe. I don't remember. They may have been heels in the Crockett Cup, because once again, that was in that was well, that was in Watts, where mm -hmm. they were sort of working on. I think yeah, because I think they wrestled the Fantastics. So yeah, yeah this so, is about that time. Yeah, yeah, so this is when they had the uh, the snakeskin pants, mm -hmm. as opposed to the lightning bolt pants from like the Memphis era and the AWA era. So. Yeah, so um, there's some stuff on there. Um, I think we've always known how good a worker Chavo was. Watching uh, those matches in Houston, how, would you say that reputation stands up? I would. Um, we've got him in a few different situations. I mean, first off, he was an ethnic draw. Um, he sort of took the... You know, with Manny Fernandez kind of in the middle, he took the torch from Jose Lothario... Um, to some degree, and he was one of the top consistent draws in Houston. All of the other guys would come in from, you know, Southwest, or they'd come in from Watts, and he'd sort of be one of those constants, like uh, a couple of years before Tiger Conway Jr. or Gino, um, who would be there, uh, sort of that 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 sense of familiarity with the crowd. So he was in a lot, um, and he, yeah, he's definitely um, incredibly talented. We haven't seen a ton of 
big singles matches yet. Um, we have had a few, though. For instance, one of his many matches with Gino popped up, and it's just a great match. And you can tell how great the feud was, and it felt like a really big moment because it's him reclaiming the junior international heavyweight title or the international junior heavyweight title from Gino. Um, that was a cool match. There's also a match with Bockwinkle where Bach comes in as the AWA champ, sort of wanting competition and saying that this local guy, even if he was, you know, had done things in his career, just wasn't up for muster. And um, it's a great little match where Bachwinkle sort of tries to one-up him on everything in the beginning, and, and uh, Chavo's able to sort of show him time after time that he's uh, should be in the match with him. And that's a great little match. But most of what we have so far are tags – and um, they're generally good. The one thing I'd say is that the style of the Guerreros is a little weird. They um, – the structure. They have what I call sputtering heat where they will um, do a lot of little heat segments and a lot of little comebacks. Um, instead of bringing the crowd up and down, they sort of just keep the crowd in a constant roar. And it works out well though. I mean the crowd's definitely into their stuff and Chavo looks great in doing just about everything he does. Now, um, a cursory look on YouTube shows not a lot of their stuff versus the fabs is on there. But something I did see, and on paper sounds like it should be pretty good. I don't know if this is from the NWA stuff or not. But there's a match where Ch- where uh, Chavo wrestles Mr. Olympia Jerry Stubbs. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not something that is on the net or the the system as of yet. You know, we have some some cool stuff of him teaming with wrestling too, um, for instance, but not anything with him and Stubbs as of yet. And it looks like a cursory look of Daily Motion also does not have anything show up right away. There is. Uh... I did see there was a a short match that ha, that's clipped, but it's it's the uh, it's the Rock and Rolls versus the mm-hmm. Guerreros, which I assume is probably from Houston too. Yeah, we um, have some six mans like with them. Um, what we're missing so far is some of the gimmick matches they had with the Rock and Rolls, which is a bit of a shame because I mean we, we probably will get them at some point, but some of them look pretty cool um they did have a heel run where they went up against the fantastics um the rock and rolls and what led to that heel run was uh our angle that we do have where hector comes in demanding respect and you know wrestling lothario and um instead of going clean once lothario gets the upper hand on him it sort of does the um Bruno Larry Zabisco thing where Hector is the one to start cheating on him and uh, start unload on him. And then uh, Shabo said that he's going to come in and make peace and everything like that. He ends up turning on Lothario too. And you have a series of matches against people like Lothario and Taylor and Lothario and Madrill. What we don't have yet, which uh, is something I'm looking forward to getting eventually, is Lothario pairing with a really young Shawn Michaels against the Guerreros. So I'm hoping we get that at some point. That's their hero run at um, you know mid '84 into early '85. I was going to say is I'm surprised if they have like they wouldn't have. Or I guess my question is: is stuff being posted on there mostly chronologically, or is it a lot of great no. hit stuff? 
it's not even that. It's as the reels get converted. Um, it's literally as the tapes come back from the people that they have converting them, they put them up. So it's whatever they find first. Uh, there's no real rhyme or reason except for if you get one match from a card, it's very likely you're going to get other things. In, in this case, uh, as we talk about Shava, we just got a uh, Sweetan versus Dick Slater match from 82. And because we got that match, I know that they have the card. Because I know they have the card, I know eventually we're going to get Bachwickle versus Tommy Rich. I know we're also going to get um, – it's one of his few matches on there, but Connect versus – it's either Tully or Gino. I think it's Connect versus Gino, which should be really cool from 82. And we're going to get, relevant to this, a draw between Chavo and 1982 Wayne Ferris, which I can't wait to see. So at some point in the next you know, four or five months, we'll probably get those matches because they found that real. Some of those sound pretty random, just just on, it, on, on paper. Yeah, it's – um I, I – you know – like Tommy Rich was in for a few shots here and there. Um, he it actually leads to a really big show where he wrestled Gino in a cage match, and if Gino lost, then he would have to kiss Paul Bosch's foot. If he won, then Paul Bosch would have to kiss his foot. And we just got the main event of that show today, which I'm excited about um, because it means we're going to get that cage match, which was uh, – a really good, probably the best one I've seen so far, Bockwinkle versus JYD match, which was Heenan's first time in Houston managing Bockwinkle. Um, and it's – I'll spoil it, but I know we're off topic here. And, but um, the finish is the ref bump, and uh, JYD has the match won, but Heenan counts the pinfall to trick him. <laughs> so um, – Dog thinks that he won. It's a great finish, but yeah, we get we have no idea what's coming with the service, which is you know, on the one hand it's a downside, on the other hand it's almost like opening a pack of baseball cards and you never know what you're going to get. Well, we did uh, in the past talk to Bruce about coming on the podcast to talk about the site, and I still like I still would. It's just you know it's one of those things where. It, we were going to, and some dates didn't work out, and we didn't get back. So hopefully, we'd have him on again in the future. Maybe with all this with this Chavo stuff being on there, maybe it would be a good time to try and get him back on, or get him on in the first yeah. time. Um, speaking of the service, just if we're going to start rambling, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned either today or yesterday that something very, very good just got posted. Oh, yeah. Um, we had gotten the third fall of this maybe a year ago, and they hadn't found the first two yet. And they usually don't post anything until they get the first, all three falls, but this was so good a third fall that they had to post it. And I had not watched it at that point, um, and I just did yesterday. It's a Terry Funk versus Harley Race NWA title match, 40 minutes from 1977, um, except for maybe about a minute clipped Early in the first fall, we have the whole thing, uh, commentary, pretty good video quality, and it's it's amazing. I mean, Funk is a genius, and we don't get to see too much of him at this point in the 70s. We have a few matches on the service, um, you know, him carrying Tim Brooks to an amazing match, for instance. But you know, we also don't have a ton of race from this period. Um, he had just gotten the belt back not long before this, and you know the mat work at the beginning with fun, funk working over the arm is just he does some things that I've never seen before. You know, even 40 years later, um, 
race uh just is grisly you know he's not as shooting as you see him sometimes and they just kill each other with blows throughout the match it, it, it's just in the third fall um blood comes into it and it, it revolves around funk continuously going for the spinning toe hold and race continuously punching him in the face and busting him open and just the two of them back and forth of that i won't spoil exactly how it ends but it's one of the best nwa title matches i've ever seen um anything we get from funk from this period is just gold and we're lucky to have it so yeah that was uh an amazing buried treasure from the service yeah needless to say if people are older fans it's definitely something they should have it's it's the kind of thing there's so many streaming services now i believe power slam tv just went live today because mm-hmm. I believe our friend Black Terry is doing something with the show he's at in Mexico tonight. I don't remember who that is off the top of my head. But um, they launched today. You, of course, have the network. You've got mm-hmm. New Japan World. Um, and I guess most promotions now have their own site. Certainly Chikara has one. Um mm-hmm. So it's if you're a fan, it's all it's you know you have to be judicious with your money. But yeah. I would say that if you're, you know, our age or older mm-hmm. or don't care much for the current product, that the money might be better spent on the NWA site than on the network. Or you could just pick and choose which you know get one for a month, get another for mm-hmm. a month, or something again get caught up during that time that's probably what people do so yeah we won't i mean i don't want to talk too much more about the service here but it there's nothing quite like it that we have available as footage you know you'll get um jcp footage where you'll get a few minutes here and there that you know the garbage tapes or you'll have full cards from msg but they're crap um you know two-thirds of the cards going to be terrible this is arena footage from, you know, like I said, 77, 78, 386, full matches with commentary, usually two out of three falls. Almost all of them go about 20 minutes unless they're an undercard match with real talent that they brought in, you know, using the world-class people, using the Southwest people, using the Mid-South people and the UWF. Um, and we just don't have long matches from this period, especially not arena matches. What you might have is um, like Portland TV. You'd get full matches. Occasionally Memphis would post you know, would would show something on TV, but for the most part, um, they are long arena matches in a way that we just don't have from any other territory when you think about it from this period. So it's it's um you know, footage that no one's seen in thirty, forty years. It, I've I've been enjoying it a lot. Every day it's something different, and even the undercard matches you learn a lot from because you get to see workers like Chavo in settings you know we don't have that much from we don't have that much as a spoiler we begin more of that um we get to see brody in a different light which you know usually you're stuck seeing him in japan where he's working a very specific way um there there's other wrestlers like that so much of gino you know what we had at gino was just a drop in the bucket compared to what we're getting now um and he was such a natural so early so it, it plus you know I'm a huge Bachwinkle fan. We get to see him against Ricky Morton. We get to see him against Dick Slater. We get to see him against Shavo. We get to see him against a bunch of different opponents we'd never really seen him against before. So yeah, it's it's um if you are a fan of old wrestling, there is literally nothing like it. Cool. Um, what 
have you here. Um, mm-hmm. What uh, what in comics uh, that you're reading uh, is floating your boat? Um, the thing that uh, that I've really liked over the last couple issues is um, Al Ewing's U.S. Avengers, which is the reboot of his new Avengers book. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very sort of fun, goofy comic, and you may be hearing more about that on an upcoming podcast. But uh, I, as, as we talked uh, a month or so ago, you read most of the Marvels and a lot of the DCs. So mm-hmm. um, what would you say is at the top of your pile right now? Yeah, let's stay without Ewing. I really like Ultimates. Um, I think the you know one problem I had with Marvel in the mid two thousand, even earlier, is that they weren't telling the big cosmic stories. And there is no story out of Marvel right now, and really in the last many years, except for maybe Jonathan Hickman stuff, that is bigger in scope and bigger in um, ambition when it comes to massive sci-fi than Ultimates. They're rewriting the you know. Chaos and order and the living tribunal and building in the new universe stuff and it's just it's such a pleasure to see toys that big being played with and and Ewing just letting the full imagination of what a Marvel comic can be out. Um, that book yeah, also, so. that book also has really interesting sort of non traditional art too. Mm-hmm. It does. That I, I think helps the, what they're doing with it. Yeah, it does. Um, and I've been enjoying the art on uh, Mark Wade's Avengers book, which is uh, Da Mundo. I know that it's kind of weird for this, the mainstream straight-up Avengers book, but it doesn't really feel like the flagship book anyway. So there's no reason why they can't play with it a little bit, especially with some of the time travel stuff they've been doing. Um, having some non-traditional art when you're doing a crazy time travel story sort of does pay off. I know uh, I know our friend Al Kennedy from House of Science is a big fan of the new Wasp book. Uh, mm-hmm. do you, how do you think that's going? It's good. Um, it, I feel like it may be trying just a little bit too hard, but one thing which I think has worked amazingly for um, Ms. Marvel is just how likable the main character is and how relatable she can be. You know, Wasp has um and i can't even remember the name of the character but it has the main character saying these quips which sort of i'm not gonna say they break um the fourth wall the fifth wall the third wall any kind of walls but i you know to some level they do because it's it's almost an out a fan's perspective and whenever you do that especially if you're trying to get across a character to an audience which may be reluctant to embrace her, um, I think that makes her all the more relatable. So I, I do enjoy all the little quips that she makes. I enjoy just the character's motivation and the fact that she's not going to accept um, a status quo in a way that other characters might just because it is the status quo. So yeah, I've found it enjoyable so far. I'm wondering if they can keep it up indefinitely though, but I have hopes. It is funny how many characters Marvel has right now that are sort of like hyper aware of of like sort of the superhero superhero tropes and or history. Mm-hmm. It's like Ms. Marvel, you know, was sort of created as a like a fangirl who knew everything about all these heroes and such and such like that. And like you said, the Wasp is kinda of like that. 
And then, like, we have the ultimate example, I guess, is Gwenpool. Who yeah, that's Gwenpool's gimmick. That's her superpower. You know, I, I, I read the first trade after I think we talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. It, it just did not do anything for me. It, yeah, it, it, it's a little too irreverent for you, I think. Well, it's funny because, you know, it's almost like she's, it's almost like she's ambush bug. Yeah. But I don't know if it's because that time has passed or <laughs> it's just that, you know, my fondness for that from the 80s doesn't carry over anymore as much as I like metatextual stuff. Or maybe it's because I don't like Deadpool and I don't really like Spider-Gwen, so... Oh, she she's not really anything know, like either I, of them. I, I know, it's, but it's... I know. You know what I mean? It's the... It's one reason why I like it so much is because it did take me by surprise, I think. No, I think you hit on it, though. The fact that there are so many comics right now that are very self-aware, um, that are, I think, offbeat in that way, that are playing down that niche. You know, Marvel has a lot of stuff, which I, I don't even know how to explain it, except for it's almost like that DCU um, relaunch that they did last year, that DC did. But Marvel's half their lines like that with, with the books and, and it means it doesn't stand out and now that i think about it i mean hellcat's sort of like that too i love hellcat though but yeah you know, i mean it's you've you know they've brought i mean they've brought back all these characters not only from like her past mm-hmm. marvel hellcat stuff but from like the patsy walker romance comics yeah and mockingbird was like that and squirrel girls like that to some degree and you know it's it um, th- there's a whole line like that. I mean, you could even say Silver Surfer's like that in some level right now. That's yeah, I. That's one I. I think I read the first issue and decided. It, there's just a lot. It's funny. There's a lot of stuff of Marvel I really like, and then there's a lot of stuff. I think I say this sort of probably too often on the pod that. I recognize the quality, and I also recognize that it's not for me. So I'm glad it's being published, but I don't want to read it. Mm-hmm. And I think some a lot of that sort of alt humor stuff, like you know, I grew tired sort of quickly of Squirrel Girl, mm-hmm. but some of the other ones I I really like, and I I like this this Wasp book too. Um, is there anything at DC you think is worth mentioning other than sort of the four or five books we keep talking about since Rebirth started? No, not really. Um, um yeah. It's it's basically the same stuff. It hasn't been – there's a lot of comics that are sort of mediocre, and they're unoffensive. Um, I see what they're going for. They just don't quite hit it. I have not got a chance to read the Justice League book from this week yet, so I'm curious to see how, how that's – because I think this is the, the Steve Orlando book. So I get – I mean he seems to be one of the people they're pushing – one of the new creators that's been giving a lot of stuff, so we'll see how that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's we'll wrap it up. Have you written anything new over at Segunda Caída you want to pimp? You know they've been so busy with their uh, match of the year project that they do for all the previous years that I haven't fit in too much stuff. But I did today write up a. Harley Race versus Crusher Blackwell match from St. Louis that 
Rory Lucier, who's been posting a lot of stuff on YouTube, posted, which um, that's sort of my St. Louis dream match because those are two of the three wrestlers, Mem and Butch Reed, that um, worked St. Louis a lot in the 80s that I think you know would be the most interesting to see. And it's a great match. It's everything you want out of a babyface Harley Race match from the mid-80s where you know at the end of the match he's going to slam the Giants. Um, I say, is this is this another instance where um, I think people generally now in hindsight have a much better opinion of Jerry Blackwell than maybe they did at the time. But mm-hmm. is he another guy who is like a different and slash better worker when he's in St. Louis than he is other places? Um, you know, I would actually I think in that article I call him the uh, most underrated wrestler of all time. Uh, some of it's because. He didn't get enough credit. Um, he he broke down by the time most people saw him in you know eighty five eighty six. There wasn't much left with him, um, but he's he's a great worker. I mean, the structure of this match is that um, Harley will do something to him, like he'll hit him with a drop kick or he'll hit him with a suplex, and then Heel Blackwell will a minute later when he gets back on offense, do a revenge move of, of that same thing. So he'll do a huge suplex after Harley barely got him over and he hits a drop kick, you know, after Harley hits a drop kick and he was much more athletic a little bit earlier in the decade. Um, that said, I think he had even in his late baby face run had a lot of, uh, awesome timing and, and, you know, some of the stuff he did with Brody, for instance, late on, he, he wasn't the problem in those matches. Brody was, um, I just think that he was breaking down at a time where the sheets especially were focusing more and more on work rate, um, and he wasn't going to be able to keep up with that. Yeah, so people can check that out. Thanks again, Matt, for yep. doing this on short notice. Mm-hmm. We wanted to try and do a new segment talking about Chavo in Los Angeles with our friend Vandal Drummond, but this pod came together on short notice and we did not have time to work anything out, so we are playing an old clip from episode 7 of the podcast when Vandal was on to talk about the death of Roddy Piper, and part of that was Piper's feud in Los Angeles with Chavo, so we are going to play part of that now. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time. I'm ready for <laughs> and I feel very privileged that I just happened to be a wrestling fan at that time because I bet you anybody who's been a wrestling fan for like a triple digit decades, uh, not triple digit decades, but over three decades or so all have these memories of, you know, these different crossroads as fans. And, you know, for me, the very first uh, one was when I was 10 and saw Raul Mata for the first time. And 1985, when I first saw Negro Casas, that was like a turning point as as a fan. But one of them was definitely in 1976 when Roddy Piper came into L.A., which I learned years later was just supposed to be, I think, just like a month-long stay before going up to Don Owen. Uh, Leo Garibaldi saw something in him. I, I remember seeing him once or twice as a babyface who pretty much was a lamb sent to the slaughter for the heels. And then one night, he came out there with Javarug, who you East Coast folks definitely know about Johnny Rods. 
who played like a a mad Middle Eastern character who the only words he spoke were rook, rook. And, you know, the gimmick was essentially he'd, he'd get disqualified because all he did was maim his opponents. And I, I guess he did an angle where he wrestled Piper and destroyed Piper. And the following Wednesday night on live, live TV, Piper comes out for the first time. At least I don't remember him wearing a kilt before, but I had a kilt that night. And he had a T-shirt. And on the back of it said, if you can't beat them, join them. And he just let loose with this great heel interview, just with this big Cheshire Cat grin, you know, saying, this man, Jopper Root, taught me something, you know, very good. Here I was trying to, you know, you know trying to follow the rules. And, you know, I, I realized, uh, you know, that's not the key to success. And then, you know, he takes us. The first ever jab that the fans I ever heard was, I want you to read what's on the back of my shirt. Read this, and then he pauses and says, oh, I forgot, you're a wrestling fan. Most of you don't know how to read. And from then on, he just went into you know these great, cocky tirades, and it was unlike any heel I had ever seen in my life. You know, 70s, most regional wrestling territories would have these, you know, badass bad guys who, you know, were usually pretty serious or just straight out men- menacing, where he was just like this trickster that was out of control. You know, and I, and L.A. territory was definitely on the descent. It was going downward, heading toward oblivion, but there were a few bright spots, you know, the other being Chavo Guerrero, who Piper probably worked with more times than anybody he ever worked with. But there were still a lot of really seasoned veterans, people like uh, Gordon and Goliath, you know, the Tony Rocco, Raul Mata, you know. So he was there to learn from some of the best, no doubt. Especially when, you know, the heel persona, I'm, you know, I think most of that was definitely him. But I can't help but think both Leo Garibaldi, who was the booker in L.A., and uh, I suspect he learned a lot from Black Ordman because Black Ordman is every heel move that everybody else should do and doesn't. And the thing that I think, you know, I, I hope someday more LA tapes from that period surface because what's missing from the Piper repertoire as he, you know, hit Crockett in Georgia, you know, he'd be a little bit of a chicken at times, but in LA, he would be just this total bully, but when uh, the baby faces finally called him on and looked like they were going to give him his due, he would suddenly start kissing their ass and just say, let's make up. I'm so sorry for what I've done. The, the greatest was whenever he would, he would have a Loser Leaf Town match coming up. And very frequently, this is the first time I had ever seen this, very frequently the heels that he would team with, eventually they would break up. And the heels, uh, I'm trying to think of some, uh, Keith Franks, later Adrian Adonis, Crusher Verdue, once they broke up, they would just talk about how Piper portrayed them and how he was a brother, and they would sign on for a loser leave town. And these interviews were classic. Piper would get on TV and beg the fans, you don't want to see me leave, do you? No, you don't. Please, send your cards and letters to the auditorium saying, no, we don't want Robbie Piper to leave. This is terrible what they're trying to do to me. 
and you know, it, Los Angeles was, was such a melodramatic territory, and Gene LaBelle would look at him sternly and shake his head, saying, "You brought this on yourself, Roddy Piper." And you know, it, Piper would scream conspiracy, and it worked. God, the fans, the fans. You know, I'm sure the longer he was around, they saw the pattern that he would eventually win the loser league town match. But they, uh, they loved, you know, seeing him in that vulnerable role where finally the bully was going to get his due. His big feud was with Chavo and the rest of the Guerreros, right? Because apparently, from from what I'm reading, they feuded for years. Yeah, well, they say for years, but in fact, it was probably only about three years because he hit the territory in 1976. I know in his autobiography he says he came in 1973, but um, I think he remembered some anecdotes well, but his dates were way off. He was like a three years ahead of his time. So it was from 1976 to 1979. And yeah, his feud with the Guerreros was great, especially at the beginning because they had a trophy called the Jewel Strongbow Scientific Trophy where it was almost like the matches in the late 80s and early 90s in Mexico that we would see frequently where a heel would be wrestling in a title match, but he would wrestle as a technico, you know, throwing no punches, which I always thought was a very neat twist in Mexico. And in L.A., I, I assume this was their way of saying, you know, doing the equivalent of that. So, it, you know, to win the match, you couldn't throw a punch. You, you know, you, I don't think he could even slap. It had to be hold-for-hold wrestling. And Chavo held the trophy. And the night Brody Piper challenged him for it, uh, Piper, you know, was wrestling scientifically. Chavo's getting the best of him. And if I remember right, Piper's doing these little things to kind of get at Chavo's goat. But Papa Gory Guerrero was in the front row there mentoring his son. And uh, Piper finally gets out of the ring and just walks by Gory Guerrero and smacks him across the face. And then Chavo just goes ballistic and then starts wailing on Piper and gets disqualified. It's one of those things that I could see a lot of heels doing, but none quite. There was something about Piper, probably because he was so young and his persona was so arrogant. And plus, when people would call him on something and he looked like he was in trouble, he would suddenly turn into this just, you know, sniveling little rat-faced git, just, you know, you know, begging for people to try to see things his way. And the Guerrero feud, it was very good. I think the only problem was uh, the territory really wasn't paying well then. Uh, good quality heels came in less and less, and Chavo and Piper, I think, were absolutely the gold standard, the finest. I mean, Chavo was the finest babyface. Piper was a great heel, and the feud went on so long, and they wrestled each other so frequently. Uh, even newspapers who do little write-ups about wrestling would make jokes like, "Okay, folks, uh, the TV summer reruns are coming early as Piper and Chava will wrestle each other for like the 56th time in several months." So it was a great feud, but it just went on too long, and you know that's no knock on them; it's a knock on the LaBelle promotion. They apparently had a hair match and a loser leave town match where Piper lost and came back under a hood. So it's almost like they went through like all of the tropes in this feud. Exactly. And I I remember well that's the first thing because you know, I was I started being a wrestling fan in nineteen seventy two 
And to me, it always seems like a territory cries desperation when they do one of two things, when they keep turning a heel from babyface back to heel, back to babyface, back to heel. It's almost like they're grasping at straws trying to you know, keep the promotion going. The other thing is when they don't deliver on the stipulation matches. When they have loser-week town matches, when they start watching in the territory, uh, it was a little past its peak, but it was still very strong. When somebody lost a loser-week town match, it meant they left. It meant they were going to another territory and probably not coming back. Or if they came back, it was a few years up the road. Yeah, when you know, because Piper, I know he came back as a Canadian. I, you know, I'm I'm struggling to remember, but there were two other loser leave town matches like that where somebody came back under a hood. And you know, I remember even even a pretty naive new wrestling fan. I was thinking, oh, this is kind of hokey. That kind of takes a little sharpness out of the dagger, so to speak. 